1: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and since it's Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, my friends, Angelina and Tim. How's it going, y'all?
0: <laughs> Why wait? Did I get an upgrade, or is it no. a downgrade?
1: It was just. My, <laughs> I
0: got a title, and I don't know what, how to feel about
1: that. What's the down? What like? What's the up? What's friends like? What's the upgrade above friends that you could have been downgraded from?
0: Like, I don't know. Master? You know, I just. I, I don't know. When a guy introduces you as his friend, that's almost always a bad thing. <laughs> and here's my friend, Angeline. I just feel i feel like I suddenly just got, I don't, I don't well, know, but, friend-zoned on close read.
1: But what about Tim? Like, I, if I say that this is my friend Tim, no one thinks twice about it.
0: Maybe they should. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm super sensitive to those kinds of labels, David. Just thought, pressing Sorry, on the bruises. All right. all
1: right, you know what? We will back off the labels, and I'll just say... It, People, Tim and Angelina here. These are people.
0: It's Tim, really the safest thing.
1: Yeah,
3: because
0: I overthink everything. Tim, you're here what?
1: too, right? I am here. <laughs> What's up? Tim's probably- Angelina, you overthink everything.
0: <laughs> I know, like shocking. I know.
1: <laughs> so I got to tell you the story. So I want to hear it, David. So my um my sister and her her husband and her daughter just got back in town they live on upstate new york where they are my brother-in-law's in the army and they they live at an army base up there and uh so they get they got home last night so after doing some christmas shopping i dropped in to play a little bit of fifa with my brother-in-law like one does right well, some video games at
0: the kern house that's how it rolls yes
1: <laughs> yeah well now people are going to think less of us but that's all right so um, people
0: don't understand that kern the, the kern house that is fifa central man and they take <laughs> it seriously
1: yeah, well, we hadn't been playing in a long time, so we're very rusty, I will say. So anyway, so I'm playing uh, this video game, FIFA's, FIFA soccer video game, for those who don't know. And um, all of a sudden, uh, my sister, we're sitting, it's kind of quiet. My sister, like, does one of those Hey David things, you know, like she's going to say something. So it's Hey David. And I was like, yep. And she goes, do you like doing close reads? <laughs> <gasps> and, and I was like, I was like, what the you
0: need? right there no, with you. I have the same thing bethany has to had to convince me that you're having a good time anyway continue
1: so um so she goes so i said wait what do you mean by that she's like no she didn't really explain it and then my and then my brother-in-law goes oh yeah you guys are pretty good on that we were listening to that on the way up here and uh and then um at one point my we're talking about the show a little bit and my brother-in-law goes uh, he goes, you know, it's really funny because sometimes you guys will make great points. And the next thing I know, you're just talking about candy. <laughs> <laughs> and you
3: said exactly right.
1: I, I was like, yeah, that's, that sounds about, I feel like you're listening to the right show there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I David, did your funny. sister ask that because it, why did she ask? Oh, I don't really know. I don't, I mean, maybe I don't sound excited on to be on the show with you guys. I don't know. Oh. I don't know.
0: I think you sound more excited now. Once I got to see your face when we started doing it in person, then then I realized you were having a good time.
1: So I've got a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> that was you have a face
3: that. for dampen enthusiasm. No, no, you have a voice for dampen enthusiasm. <laughs> I guess.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because I've actually thought about this. I don't know why we're talking about this on the show. It's sort of nonsense, but I've thought about how I should speak on these different podcasts. So, like, I practice sometimes, especially for intros, and. I've always, I've always know that like in the old days of radio, I would never be on the radio. Right. I now have a voice that's like deep and like, I'm going to do announcing for like the movie trailers or something. Um, in but, a world, your books
0: are read closely. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> in a world. Um, so, uh, I thought about that and I thought about like, do I just, should I try to have extra enthusiasm? Should I try to be more serious? Should I try to talk more formally? Or should I just sound like my nasally weird self? And I just decided it's a lot easier to just go we like be myself. It's just a lot less work. I agree. <laughs> I agree.
0: Okay, so yeah, I'm going to throw out my crazy Angelina theory on this because I noticed that I tend to have two very different effects on people when I talk to them, right? So I just assumed that this is what was happening. Effect number one, they get caught up in my enthusiasm and then they end up feeding my enthusiasm and we become like an enthusiasm tornado together. And then they're... <laughs> For other people, that the more enthusiastic I get, it's like then they become even calmer. Like they're trying to create balance in the universe as they talk to me, which of course just makes me want to be more enthusiastic to get them (laughs) up and it becomes a vicious cycle. So I just assumed you were person number two. And like the more hyper excited I get, you're like, and calm down, Angelina.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a different, the host, I feel like my job is to just keep thinking. So i mean let me rephrase that my job is to pretend that i'm here to keep things moving and occasionally make an attempt at that speaking of which we probably should talk about 12 tonight Um,
2: i don't know why chapter
3: or i started to say chapter five
1: yeah we're we're here to talk about act five um before we do uh do talk about that i want to just remind people that if you are a patreon supporter if you're a patron uh We have posted a bonus show this week with Benedict Whalen, uh, Dr. Benedict Whalen from Hillsdale College. He and I chatted a little bit about uh, teaching Shakespeare and why he loves it and some particular things about this play. So some extra bonus content there. Uh, Another story, my brother got back from college a couple days ago and he was sitting on the couch with us last night. And he was telling me that people at Hillsdale, Dr. Whalen is one of the most beloved professors there. So um, that's a little support for for his appearance on the show i guess but i enjoyed the conversation it had some good feedback so far so if you have not gotten to listen to that yet you can head over to patreon.com slash close reads and check that episode out if you want to get access to that then you can become a patron um and i think you could even get access to that at the two dollar a month level so again that's patreon.com slash close reads so let's go ahead and talk about act five now um this is act five and it is all of one scene long. So here's my question for you, Shakespeare scholars, the, two, the two, that being the two of you, of course. Um, is it common that the final act is a single scene in Shakespeare?
3: Oy oy. oy. Uh,
0: I'd have to look it up, but I would probably say that's pretty common. I mean, Taming the Shrew has two scenes, which that's, it's actually un- unusual, I think. It's Gosh. very, it's very, I mean, act five is always super fast. I can't, I don't know off the top of my head how many scenes.
1: But they're usually, the, as far as pacing goes, it usually is very speedy.
0: Oh, yes. Things are resolved quickly. There's the, there's always the sudden reversal and the recognition scene. They come right together. So it's boom, boom, boom resolution. Tim,
1: does that ever uh, cause disorientation for you? That That's, it's so rapid?
3: Yeah. Well, it's funny thing is, I don't know that it's, I, I don't think that it, I agree. I, I can think of a few Shakespeare plays where it's, oh my goodness, it's a laborious conclusion. I mean, um, measure for measure for me, it kind of drags. The conclusion kind of drags. I think it might be, and I, and I don't think it's all one scene typically. I mean, you know, there'd be kind of an empirical way to test this. Just look at the conclusions of the plays, but
0: (laughs) just based on my memory. These questions before we start recording, because this would be easily remedied.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but then I would have to, then it would seem like I asked you ahead of time.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I just randomly flipped to Love's Labor's Loss, and let's see what Act Five is. It has two scenes. Okay. Two scenes in that one.
1: Okay. So. I, I'm interested in this idea of the rapid, the, the rapidity of these endings or the, or the suddenness of them, the sudden reverse yeah. and then the, the resolution. Because- and I just, David, let me just
3: say, before you jump into this, I, I when I was going through act five, I thought, wow, this is so thrifty. This is so unlike Shakespeare's act, F- act fives. Sometimes they're thrifty, but oftentimes I kind of want to be like, hey, Will, let's get a move on, buddy.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe only... I should my terms when I when I mean. Well, first of all, the comedies are going to be much faster at the end than the tragedies because the tragedies have the long, you know, 14 pages of "and I die, and yet I still die, and also I'm still dying." <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm I'm specifically talking about the comedies where it's the very very sudden. Like so, so the the plot has been going on a trajectory toward you're down, 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 right as the tangle gets worse uh-huh. and they go further into their symbolic death. And when they come out of that, the the coming out of the death is very fast. And I don't necessarily mean like in terms of time, but that in terms of like the preparation for it, it's it it's meant to be sudden and miraculous. So it's not going to be a slow build to the untangling, but some you know piece of paper with the is found under some, stuck under somebody's shoe, right? That kind of thing. And then they open it yeah. up and that's the clue that unravels the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's very, the, the unraveling of the knot happens in a snap. It's, it's meant to be very sudden and miraculous.
1: So do you, I'll ask and you. And
0: a tragedy has that much more of that um, slow build of inevitability as everything just sort of avalanches and falls down on you.
1: So, do you do you either of you find, as I put it a minute ago, the sort of pay, the rapid breakneck, breakneck pace and the suddenness to be disorienting at all?
3: You were talking about in this play.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll go with this play, but in general, when that happens like that. But let's we'll just stick with with twelfth night particularly.
3: I I found this a little bit um, having not having not read it for a while. I thought that there was going to be more of a betrothal and maybe even, gosh, I want to say, I keep going back to measure for measure. Um, I want to say the, the betrothal is relatively long in measure for measure. This was, yeah, a little bit so rapid that I got, uh, I don't know, unnerved is the right word. I was just surprised. I was surprised. He, it seemed to me like he left a lot of things intentionally undone that in other comedies, he puts a bow on. For example, Malvolio. Malvolio, there's, he's not restored. He's not, um, like justice is not done on his behalf or anything like that. He just kind of, escapes in complaint of the injustice done to him and that's the last we see of him and there's no real justice performed on um sir toby and sir andrew there's not you know this kind of like betrayal in which they um fake the letter from their mistress to malvolio there's sort of a a half-hearted apology and that's left undone so Again, for me, I, I think this is a this is even by the romance. Excuse me, even by the comedies. This struck me as a really rapid wrap up, and there are a lot of things left undone. And that, for me, is a little bit of a exception rather than the rule for Shakespeare's comedies.
0: Hmm. Is it my turn now? Yeah, yeah.
1: I was just going to say Angelina. What What are you?
0: Um, okay. Well, typically, no, I don't find them to be abrupt or disorienting because I come to ex- I mean, I expect it. But in terms of right. what Tim is saying, in terms of the loose ends, um, I, I agree. One of the things that we have not talked about that I hoped we would get to today is the subtitle of, of the play. It's, it's, Night on, R- my
1: list. R- it's okay. on my list. Okay. Awesome.
0: So, uh, yes, I think that there is some intentional ambiguity at the end and what you will, right? How? He's throwing it to the audience to, to interpret the ending. Um, so I agree that things are not as tidily, even the marriages. So you have the resolution with the marriages, but, um, and, and again, this is something I hope we'll delve into deeper, but um, you have, we've been talking about this excess and these characters are drowning in emotion, right? And the two characters who are not that way, um, well, three, if you count Fest, but in terms of these, these love stories, you have Viola and Sebastian, right? The two who did not drown. Everyone's drowning. And they're the two that did not drown, right? And 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 so they are—they're these elevated characters. So, in the in in a typical Act Five reversal with the resolution and the redemption, it's clear that a redemption has happened. And part of what Tim might be feeling is that that is not clear at the end of this play. that, that is intentionally. Ambiguous. Um, one of well, Harold Goddard, who I've talked about, uh, he wrote *The Meaning of Shakespeare*. That, that particular scholar, he he says this, which I think is super interesting. That so he traces the idea of Viola and Sebastian as being like the stable characters who are elevated, um, and and typically what's going to happen is those marriages are, are going to be redemptive to the characters. But here in this play, it's intentionally ambiguous. So at the end, you're left asking: Is Viola marrying Arsino? going to redeem him and help him to become the man he needs to be, likewise with Sebastian and Olivia, well, will she become, will they both stop being the overly sentimental people and step into some real emotion? Um, Or will they just end up dragging Viola and Sebastian down with them? And it's not resolved at the end. And that's part of the reason why you just have Malvolio lecturing them and walking off the stage, because what you end up thinking about Malvolio has to do with what you think about the ending of the play as a whole, right? Like, So some of these things have to be intentionally left open because he's, he doesn't tidy it up. It's not so clear in this topsy-turvy world whether or not things have actually been righted or if Viola and Sebastian will be just sucked into the topsy-turviness.
1: Yeah. So what do you think of Malvolio?
0: Uh, i'm not a fan but charles lamb was famously thought that he was horribly mistreated and at the end of this play has a great deal of dignity and never loses his dignity and 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 kind of walks off the champion in in that match so charles lamb of you know shakespeare
3: but you disagree in that match what do you mean in that what do you mean in that match angelina
0: well, you know when he sort of tells them all off at the end. Yeah. Y'all well, were raw treated me like this.
3: Right. I just thought I just thought I was confused with the word match. Never mind.
0: Oh no, not like romantic match. Right. Like in the in the fight in the squaring off of the characters where he's.
3: Oh, oh, oh the like the bout. Got it.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah, right.
3: I see.
1: Oh, I thought she was talking about like you light a fire with it we took three different meanings of the word no um okay so but angeline you disagree you do not think that that malvolio ends this play with a sense of dignity
0: well I, it's not my gut feeling but I, I mean i wouldn't necessarily rule it all out i mean Malvolio's not a super interesting character to me so i can't say that i've given him a ton of thought well let's go back. i want to go back to this
1: idea of the sympathy towards malvolio because i think revisiting it at the end i asked that question a couple episodes ago How much sympathy you have for Malvolio? Does that change getting to the end of the play for you?
0: There's just there are two opposite ways you can read the ending, and I think a lot of it has to do on what what you think of him, right? So either he's this, um, you know, Puritan killjoy who really needs to be taken down a peg. And they do that to them, him. And then at the end, of course, he hasn't learned the lesson. He's unredemptive because he is still telling them, how dare you treat me like this, right? Yeah, so he's just last, kind of double. down. last line
1: is about revenge.
0: Right. So he's double downing on his position. So either you think he deserved it. And so at the end, he's unrepentant and didn't learn the lesson. Or you think that he didn't deserve it and therefore is right at the end to hold on to his dignity and to say that they were in the wrong.
1: And where do you fall?
0: I'm not a big Malvolio fan. <laughs> I mean, I will say this. Okay, so say- a couple of people on the Facebook page felt like what happened to him was, you know, it crossed the line to sadism, which, it, you know, it did, no no doubt. But again, the rules of a play are not exactly like the rules of reality. They're, it's kind of like, you know, Looney Tunes violence, right? Like, you know, there's there's certain conventions at play where, you know if if the character deserves yes, to be yes, made fun of they're yes. going to do some kind of a over, really over the top thing and then a play like this where everything is over the top then even the practical joke is going to be way beyond any kind of good sense right so i mean Man, I no i i understand the people on the facebook page who felt sympathy to malvolio because being imprisoned and you know tortured till you think you're mad is that, that's, pretty, you know, no one deserves that. Agreed. And I don't think Shakespeare is saying that an actual person deserves that. But, you know, taking the conventions as a whole, you know, it, it's everything, everything in this play is an extreme version of something. And so the practical joke is also an extreme version. But what, you know, to speak to what, what Tim said about Malvolio is kind of, you know, unresolved at the end, that's true. In a typical Shakespeare play, Shakespeare is going to come down one way or the other and make it clear, but he doesn't. I imagine this would be one of the things, too, where a particular actor's interpretation of the character would have a lot of influence on on what you thought of it as well.
1: Yeah, the way you deliver the lines. I mean, because even that I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you line at the end of, like, Mavelio's last line could be, could be presented very angrily and aggressively. Or it could be...
0: And triumphantly. More. Or it could just be ridiculous, right?
1: It could be, yeah, it could be forlorn. It could be like Rabbit from Winnie the Pooh. I felt so much
3: sympathy with him at the end. Okay, good. He, I mean, he was such a buffoon, even through chapter three. But once he went into the prison, I just just felt like, okay, you guys, hey, the joke is up. You know, let's, the joke is up. We have to kind of see through the joke because people have got to get married here at the end. But it just seemed to step over the line. And (laughs) I kind of I kind of hope he does get some revenge on on Toby and Andrew. I mean, they're just Toby and Andrew are just such oh, they're just yeah, they're just so spineless. They're spineless jerks. And granted, I mean I think I think Malvolio was a jerk, a, a jerk with a spine earlier in the play. But I just felt like He's being punished by two cads, you know they're they're barely on this side of villainy themselves, and I kind of hope off stage there is some sort of you know balancing of the scales so
0: oh um, there's a question that Toby and Andrew are horrible. I know one of the other interesting things in terms of how this is typically resolved. Is you have the re- the resolution at the end of a comedy where the community comes back together. So the fact that you have so many people off stage at the end of this is also unusual. So Malvolio makes the speech and then leaves, but Toby and Andrew and Maria, the culprits, right? They're not they're uh-huh. not in this. They're missing. So they never get reintegrated into the society. So if you read the ending as now there is a redemption, the marriages are going to be redempted, society is going to change, then those people obviously don't have a place in it. They have not been reintegrated.
1: Yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like Did, when they last each speak because <clears throat> they leave and they don't really get to...
3: Are they
0: even in Act 4?
1: You're no. talking about Toby, Toby
3: and Andrew?
0: Yeah, they are. They're in the first scene.
3: Yeah, the, fa- yeah. the fight. Toby, the...
0: Yeah. So yeah, they yeah, so they are an act for.
1: And they're only and then Toby five, a little bit. Is Maria? Say that again, sorry. Which is
0: a weird resolution. Toby marries Maria, which is a weird resolution.
1: Yeah, that is Because a- then Maria
0: ends up accomplishing what she punished Malvolio for wanting.
1: Well, I will say regarding that, that's the only relationship where I look at that and say, okay, there's I like there's a logical sense behind their partnership. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Because, yeah right 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 they you, deserve each other
1: there's that but you also have seen it building right like they've been teasing each other and flirting in yeah. all those sort of ways throughout the whole thing as opposed to sebastian who sees olivia and falls in love within like a quarter of a second As yeah. soon as he shows affection in him he's like she loves me i love her
0: <laughs> you know you know do that you guys... just guys through to me david I understand what the problem is with that <laughs>
1: I didn't say there was a problem. <laughs> Twelfth Night
3: struck me as um, a play that was kind of similar to Merchant of Venice. Merchant of Venice is not... That's interesting. I don't know. Merchant of Venice is kind of hard to place. It's not a comedy. The people get married, you know. Um, it's kind of a dramedy, I guess, in some ways. The end of Merchant of Venice is one of the most perplexing conclusions to a play and it really it's almost like a rorsch inkblot test for where you stand (laughs) about a lot of things but especially about um christian society Hmm. shakespeare lived in a christian society that was kind of like going back and forth between protestantism and catholicism so we lived in a christian society that was kind of like you know still in a dilemma between the two, between two major traditions. Um, so at the end of Merchant of Venice, Shylock is found guilty of basically, let's call it extortion. And his punishment is basically to become a Christian. He has to swear off the old faith and align himself with the new faith. And it's it's really troubling. It's a really troubling conclusion because he does seem to be in some ways um, guilty of extortion, but in some ways he actually just fulfilled his end of the bargain of a contract that was based on, oh gosh, his own like kind of bloodthirsty sense of revenge. He wanted a pound of flesh. That's the conclusion of the contract. And the contract is failed by the opposite party. I hope I'm remembering all this right. Um, The Christian party. And Shylock is kind of brought before the judge and the judge kind of obligates him to become a Christian. And when he leaves the stage, this defeated party but you also feel like sort of justice has been done to him. And in doing that justice, it is a gross injustice. So some people say this is Shakespeare, the humanist, who is pointing out how this Christian society did him, did Shylock wrong. Um, but the injustice, but, but, how much can can Shakespeare actually point that out in the Elizabethan England that he lives in? Can he actually just say exactly what how what what the injustice is that 's being done against Shylock? No he probably can 't he can 't do that, so he basically shows the injustice by having Shylock leave the stage um suffering what looks like an injustice, even though in some ways it fulfills the contract that everyone signed up for. For some reason, although the subject is different, Twelfth Night feels that way to me. It feels like um, Shakespeare's deliberately leaving undone things so that that we kind of have to rattle that play around in our chests a little bit longer.
0: Well, that's very consistent with what Harold Goddard says. So he thinks that um, Shakespeare is making a comment on, um, you know, the prosperity of Elizabethan society, that you become this excessive, you know, and we saw it in the Roman era. We have it in our own era now. When you reach a certain level of prosperity and peace and comfort, right, you go soft as a culture. You become very pleasure-seeking and that kind of thing. Um, and of course, that's gonna, that, that was very true of that age, Elizabeth Elizabethan England. And so um, Harold Goddard thinks that he's making a comment on that and leaving it open-ended by telling the audience what you will, like you decide, right? And so um, he, one of the things he points out is that this is a free society in Twelfth Night. It's free, mm. but they're in, they are enslaved. They are enslaved to their pleasure and to pleasure seeking, which is basically a comment. Elizabeth in England and, and but so so that that's part of the reason why it's open ended. It's throwing it's tossing it out to the audience. What you will like what what do you say about mm. the world that we live in and how do we get out of this? And are we all enslaved in pleasure? So you know, the audience can then decide how to read act five. Do Viola do um, uh, Olivia and Arsino need to snap out of it? <laughs> or do they need to double down?
1: Yeah. Do you think that in doing that? the play lacks um, not finality or do you think it lacks do you think in that sort of stasis it lacks catharsis mm. is that a fair way of I don't know if that's yeah. a fair way of questioning it um, or asking that phrasing that question it's clear that there's a stasis which is you know um, even though they're going to have these relationships there's not as you guys have said it's not implied that they're necessarily going to be healthy relationships or what you will. Um, but, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be that like, it, maybe it's the pace, maybe it's the suddenness of it, but it seems like it lacks in some ways, the cathartic, um, resolution or the the catharsis that resolution can sometimes. David, I, I agree, <laughs> David. I agree. I, the pace did not bother me. I, I,
3: the pace didn't bother me, and, and I found it very satisfying when um, Viola, you know, it's it's revealed. Viola didn't do all these wonderful things, all these awful things. She's uh, a woman dressed as a man, and, you know, like, all the masks come off. That part I thought was just delightful. But I do think that, like, at the end of the play... The end of the play is strangely—it's not like it's not satisfying, but it's not terribly cathartic. Whereas the end of, um, uh, oh gosh, what's the what's the why am I striking out? Beatrice and Benedict.
1: Much of what it you is, do about
3: much you do about nothing. It's so cathartic. It's just so wonderful um, because the power of the two characters that we know right. belong right. together. They finally get together, and it even They're- almost. Over it it kind of almost the joy of that relationship almost overwhelms the other problem in the play, which is um what is the name of the woman that was so done wrong by the, hero. her fiance hero. Hero. hero? It almost oh it almost makes us forget like how done wrong
1: hero so, was. So that's one thing I want to talk about here because in that play you have the the two marriages the two primary marriages at the end um of much ado are both there's catharsis in it there and in that resolution because there's been conflict between both within both those relationships throughout the play Beatrice yeah. and, Bene and, have each and
0: Benedict have both had some kind of transformation that makes the ending feel like they've grown into this person right
1: yeah yeah for what it's worth, well, that's, the, that's the next play that I want to do. If we have next time we do a play, I want to do that. Good, I good, good. That's my favorite yeah. Shakespeare play too. So,
0: You know, I don't disagree with what you guys are saying. And I'm wondering how much of this has to do with the form of this play. Because, and you can correct me if, if, if you think I'm wrong. But for me, when I think about catharsis in, in a story, that has a lot to do with how much I'm identifying with the characters, right? And going on this journey yeah. with no, the I, characters. I and that's true, yeah. For people to be, but I don't that i felt i feel something for viola i want to see her get her day right but the others eh, you know not 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 so much invested i mean if olivia gets sebastian i mean we're not we're not rooting for that because it happens so quickly and that's so i'm wondering if part of if I'm, i'm not suggesting it's a flaw or a lack of character development but i'm wondering if the whole screwball comedy madcap antics nature of it creates a little distance from it
1: no i think that's possible i think that's very possible and we so one of the things about the catharsis is there's ca- catharsis or or like a real sense of resolution comes there has to be sort of a conflict there and who's the real character that we're getting any any sort of conflict or that experiences any sort of conflict that that actually matters really it's it's just with at least within the play it's just malvolio right he's the only one that really experiences true conflicts i mean i know that like was on a ship that was sinking and all that that's true but that's not within the that's not part of the play like we don't experience that with her
3: whereas so david now, what you're saying is orsino doesn't really experience conflict he more experiences confusion and same thing
1: yeah like it, the, all the other conflict like is, 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 the play essentially makes fun of them for right right in a way it teams right, have- them
0: Yes, and, and we don't see Arstino or, or Olivia go through any kind of personal transformation, right? Mm-hmm. They just are crazy in love with one person and then crazy in love with a different person at, yeah. at the end, at the end of the play. But we don't see them experience, and that's part of the open endedness of the conclusion: is that have they grown up? Have they changed?
1: And they haven't involved- fallen. Yes, I'm sorry. I thought you were I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no. I mean, I just, are they still as flighty and oversentimental as ever and they've just found a new object for their sentiment?
1: Right, cuz they, they haven't fallen in love with someone new because they are a new person because they have changed. Right. Learned to see other people in a different way. It's right. just because they're the same person they always were, which implies that that could happen again. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's you don't there's no reason to think that 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 Orsino won't find someone else who he, he is taken with and turn from Viola.
3: Viola Whereas Benedict, Benedict, you cannot imagine him being with anyone ever for the rest of his life other than Beatrice. It's, been, like earned, Beatrice. Oh, it's been earned. Yeah, it's been
1: earned.
0: It, it feels right because you feel like they deserve each other and you don't yeah. feel... In, except for, as we said, Maria and Toby, but we mean that in a negative way. But yes, I mean, even Sebastian trying to make the case that um, Olivia is constant because you really were in love with me when you were in love with my sister pretending <laughs> to be a man.
1: It, so he's trying to, he's trying to talk them into, them, them into it. Like he, it's like they're trying to make their consciences feel better.
0: Yeah, like this isn't weird that you were in love with my sister and now you now you, you thought I was her and now you're in love. With- this isn't weird because really it- you were just in love with me all
1: It's like one of Shakespeare's, uh, someone read the play, like one of his actors read the play and they were like giving him notes. Like this is a little bit off. And then like they went back (laughs) and rewrote it and like had to build in excuses into the narrative to make us not just like think it's ridiculous. Um, Now, Yeah, there was a
0: lot of, that's not weird like lines, right? (laughs) This isn't weird.
1: Don't worry. It was like, wait a
0: minute. (laughs) So when you said you would never love a woman as much as you love me, what? Get it now. Okay, I'm in. Boom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, you're still dressed as a man, and I have never seen you as a woman, but I'm in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when when in other habits you are seen, I promise I'm gonna love you. I promise. Yeah. yeah. It's like he's trying to convince but himself does, too, right?
0: Keep dressing like a boy, and I will keep calling you cesario.
1: <laughs> so basically, this is a play about 13-year-olds. Um <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> But now we've kind of been giving negative feedback on the play, like talking about where maybe there's some limitations, and but it might be the nature of the kind of play. Now, I'm wondering two things. <clears throat> um, is the screwball nature of it, as you've put, Angelina, is that perhaps necessary because it's tied to either the, um, the season, that whole Christmas season thing? The, um, <clears throat> the twelfth. revelry, right? Yeah, the revelry. Um, is it tied to that? And then also I want to talk about the the, the song or the the poem at the end of the play yes. and figure out yeah. how those two things are tied into maybe this the subtitle. So let's talk about the, the madcap revelry uh, and how that plays into some of these uh, resolutions or not. And I wonder if either of you have any thoughts on that. That is a very general and open-ended question of which you are trained not to do when you're interviewing somebody. But this is an this is not an interview. This is a this is a conversation.
0: <laughs> you don't interview us as much as you throw throw raw meat at us, rabid dogs, and then watch us fight over it.
1: <laughs> exactly. Okay. Get it. Go at it, hyenas. Go at. It.
0: <laughs> I guess I'm not really understanding the difference between that question and what we just talked about.
1: Okay. Well, I just mean because we've kind of talked about it. Like maybe this is a flaw of the play. So what I'm saying. Well, I
0: don't, I don't, oh think it's a flaw i think this is inherent in the form i think this is meant to be just a kind of surface screwball comedy let me you're not he's obviously capable of writing characters that you really root for and are wonderful and his female characters are fantastic in other plays you know olivia's not so much to write about okay so
1: then let me ask this does that make twelfth night a lesser play than much ado by nothing for example Like, does that inherently make it lesser play just based on the the form he's using? Not because he's doing that form wrong, but because of the form he's using, does that make it a lesser play than some of the other ones? Yes.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. It has to do with the form, you know? Like, so uh, uh, a Weird Al song is not a symphony, right? So, and the symphony is greater and the Weird Al song could be the best song parody you ever heard and you might applaud it and it might be excellent for its form, but it's not a symphony. And, and there's it a, won't place, affect me, like, there's a place
1: for a symphony and there's a place for a comedic.
0: That's right. And look, and all of us have those moments, right? Because I see your Facebook post. We all have those moments where we're like, just recommend a dumb, stupid comedy to me. Just, I just want to laugh and, you know, not have the cathartic moment.
1: <laughs> so it's interesting because...
0: There's, the, there's a place for more force and light comedy. And then, of course, there's, and there's lots of room for much ado about nothing. I,
1: I like to think, compare shakespeare sometimes or at least not maybe not not, maybe not try to understand shakespeare this way but in my own mind compare him to filmmakers because it helps me contextualize things and sometimes like i don't know if you guys know the films of billy wilder very well um but there's certain films like the apartment which is a dramedy which is a very deep it's funny and there's screwball elements to it but it's it's mostly in wordplay and it's it's got dark moments even as it's got light moments much like much you do about nothing but then you've got something like some like it's hot or some like it hot which is this cross-dressing very screwball comedy which is much more like 12 tonight but the same director mm-hmm. who can who it can can master these two different forms two years apart um and they're both amazing movies like some like it hot is one of josh gibbs favorite movies it's an amazing movie um but the apartment by Spilly Wilder while also a comedy is a very different kind of comedy, but he's mastering both of them are great movies within the canon. Um, Both are movies that everyone should watch, but they're they're He's mastering a genre, but a different sort of form within that genre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
0: I think a lot of it has to do with your expectations of whether or not you feel disappointed, right? If you, if you put on some like it hot and you're expecting to see Hamlet, you're going to at the end say, well, what, what the, what did i just watch this was no good or even but, if you, you put know, on if you...
1: like if you put on dumb and dumber expecting um you've got mail they're both comedies but they branch off totally in different. different ways
0: right right
3: any sort of savvy watcher though picks up those differences relatively rapidly especially if you've had any sort of acquaintance with movies with genres it, you know within ten minutes that, well, you know within five minutes that Dumb and Dumber is not going to be You've Got Mail. I See, I, I think that part of the reason that Twelfth Night falls short of the classic Shakespeare comedies is because he chose a form, and I think he deliberately tinkers with it, but I think in his tinkering with it, we get to the end, and it, it becomes more of a... uh he kind of is like throwing elements of a different genre in there. And I think in this situation, it doesn't work. Now with Measure for Measure, I think Measure for Measure and I think um, Merchant of Venice, he tinkers with the form also, but I think it's successful. I think when he tinkers with the form, um, what happens with the characters is very rewarding, very satisfying. And I think Twelfth Night it's a wonderful play. It's Shakespeare, big picture. It's a success, but I just don't think that it compares with Much Ado,
1: Measure so for Measure. You wouldn't say it's top five comedy, no, not so for me. Do you guys think that possibly the length, like it's shorter than some of his other comedies, for sure? So, do you think that that maybe he could use more more length to flesh out some of these characters?
0: Well, you see, but I'm wondering what happens to the theme if he fleshes out the characters more. Like so if in his mind he wants to tell a play about superficial sentiment and yep. people not being deep, but just pleasure-seeking people. And he wants them to pretty much be the same throughout the whole play, so that at the end you're not sure if they've changed or not, uh-huh. then he can't develop them too much. Yeah, I
1: agree. No, yeah, that's,
3: that's he's gotta a- he's gotta lock them into adolescence in a way.
0: Right. And so and so we don't feel like, yay, Orsino and Viola finally got, yes, the stars have aligned and their souls are wide. We don't, and we certainly don't feel that way about Viola and Sebastian because we're like, man, you don't even know which sibling you're in love with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I want to point out too, um, and then this would be one of those moments where you have to see it versus versus reading it. But on the stage, they would not have actually looked like twins, nor would they have been wearing the same clothes. And so that would have made the whole thing much more hilarious. Yeah. The mistaken identity where they don't actually look alike. And it was yeah. so, it, you know, how could Olivia have been confused about who she was talking to? He well, doesn't. Doesn't, doesn't it say in the, the play, play that they
1: wear the same clothes that she dresses this, up to look like him?
0: Yes, but they're not. I mean, they're wearing the same type of clothes, but they're not literally wearing the same outfit because it's been been three months
1: right yeah yeah yeah. um (laughs) yeah that's funny
3: there speaking of the staging there were a few moments that i just because we had talked about how shakespeare builds in stage directions um into the dialogue i made note of a few things and i i thought it might be worth mentioning just because I love it. So um
1: go for it. We'll do that. And then from, I want to talk about the, the poem at the end.
3: Um, so Antonio, have you made division of yourself? This is this is when Antonio sees his master Sebastian, also sees Viola and doesn't understand. Oh my goodness, how can there be two of you? Uh, how have you made division of yourself? And Apple in two is not more twin than these two creatures, which is Sebastian. And then the next line is from Olivia and it's most wonderful. And then Sebastian, do I stand there? I never had a brother, blah, blah, blah. Viola's line, how wonderful. When you guys read it, what did you do with that? Because it's kind of, it's a little bit, it's not germane. It doesn't feel terribly germane.
0: You mean like what did I imagine she's doing?
3: Yeah, right.
0: I think it'd be pretty cool if they were like standing face to face and she's like they're like looking in a mirror, they're doing that little number. How do you imagine it?
3: I just imagine that's the moment where she that's when she first sees Viola as a man, not as Cesario, but as Viola.
0: Wait, when who when who sees it?
3: When Olivia sees That's the moment I think that she first recognizes, and her her action changes after that. Hmm. It's not Cesario anymore. It's that's a woman, but Shakespeare doesn't explain. I mean, he doesn't say this is the moment of recognition. He doesn't say Olivia sees Viola's about. I mean, she doesn't.
1: Yeah, there's no exposition, and in that moment, there's no exposition. Yeah, a great um, well, another no- one.
0: Explain the Duke his change to behavior to royal, So if we're supposed to understand, right, that some kind of transformation has happened in this character and now she seems more feminine, is that what you're saying?
3: No, no, no. I just think it's, it's. I don't think that anything changes in the appearance of Viola. I just think Olivia, that's the moment where oh, she recognizes. Is, is Tiffany,
0: you confused because you're- Yeah, 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 yeah. About- You call that a stage direction. I see what you're saying. No, it's
3: not. There is no stage direction, even though I think that the stage direction is in the dialogue. Most wonderful, that's when Olivia gets it.
1: So Shakespeare, okay, so he's burying the stage direction in there, you're saying, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, right. So another one, um, Viola says, she's talking to Sebastian, and this is after it's been revealed she is not a man she is viola she is not sebastian or she is not um cesario if nothing lets us uh if nothing lets to make us happy both but this my masculine usurped attire do not embrace me till each circumstance of place time fortune do and jump that i am viola do not embrace me is the middle line in that i think that's a stage that's that's Shakespeare telling the Sebastian actor to go embrace her, and then Viola says, "Do not embrace me." But it's, yeah. it's not written anywhere. Oh, right. it's no, you know, yeah. other than that dialogue, it's not written anywhere.
1: Well, it's certainly it, it, whether Shakespeare would have had his actors do that. It seems, it seems likely that he would have given that it's there and all that but it's at least a place to be imaginative for the performer right for, right for, yeah right? and there is like a blank slate thing about his plays in a way that you can use the language to you know just guide your imagination or like kind of create structure for your imagination
3: you know that is one of the things about shakespeare i i almost want to wish we could do an entire this could be a fun close reads is do Three different productions of something like um, Macbeth or Merchant of Venice, and see just how differently the interpretations can be because they can be legitimately profoundly different, which gets into a whole question of kind of like authorial intent. You know, like I'm a big believer in authorial intent, that's kind of like what you're trying to understand before mm-hmm. you. Um, apply a book to yourself is you're trying to understand what did this author mean, and it, Shakespeare kind of throws a wrench in all that because just what you said, David, it's so true. There's so much room. There's so much wiggle room. There's so much opportunity to uh, I don't know make Richard the Third a somewhat sympathetic character. You know, he's got a club foot and a hunchback. Maybe you can play him really sympathetic. Or maybe you can play Macbeth as, you know, a, a story about the rise of the Third Reich. It kind of mimics the rise of the Third Reich. I've seen that production of Richard the III. That was
0: totally intentional, too. It's amazing.
3: <laughs> By Shakespeare?
0: Yeah, I consulted the oracles. The like, Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, but yeah, Shakespeare is a. There is a blank slate for your imagination there. Yeah, or not? Maybe not blank a, because there's language that's there. But but he is creating a platform or a playground for for the, a performer, a reader, a director to to yes. to, to be imaginative. He's not. Right. Te- he's not. Di- he's not a dictator as an artist.
3: No.
2: And he, and he I'm creates
1: right a
3: big. A, he creates a big platform with simple architecture and the architecture you can't really move the pillars of the architecture very much but you can move all around and under and through those pillars in the in the when you're designing the performance
0: yeah and so as, as as strange as it might sound considering other things that i have said on the show about you know how, how i feel about the written word um i don't have a problem with those kinds of interpretations one of the reasons why so like you know kenneth branagh making hamlet in you know edwardian right isn't that what he does I, i've never seen that one but he he, he
2: makes
1: yeah, he it more, does. really like,
0: you should yeah, watch hamlet, like it yeah i should i just never watch movies but anyway um <laughs> Sure, that's that's an issue for another day. But uh, part part of the reason I don't have any problem with that is because Shakespeare himself played so fast and loose with historical fact. Right, he he was always maneuvering things to to bring out sort of contemporary themes and issues. And and he wasn't he he was not a historian. Right, he was a playwright. These are works of the imagination. So he would he would change things. um, you know, even the play Macbeth, for example, the actual historical record of, of Macbeth is almost the opposite of what, what we see in the play in terms of whether or not Macbeth was a good guy or a bad guy. And uh, but, but he did that because, you know, King James is on the throne and he's the legendary um, descendant of Banquo. And so he writes this whole thing and it's kind of a nod to James on the throne. And so the point is Shakespeare himself was not opposed to moving things around historically to make some contemporary issues and themes become more apparent. And so uh, honestly, that's part of the genius of Shakespeare, right? They're the, the these amazing works of imagination yeah. and they're brilliant and they're brilliantly structured and crafted. And yet there's weird flexibility in it too, so that you can, you can do a lot with it and it still be Shakespeare. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Hmm.
2: Hmm.
1: When I'm trying to think. Is he? Is there anyone else that's like that?
3: Boy, I. No one comes to mind. <laughs> no one comes to mind.
1: <clears throat> well, let's let's sort of wrap this up by talking about the poem at the end. We're going to get lots of questions from people. So again, if you have if you have questions, post them on the Facebook page. We'll create a thread for that, and we'll talk about those next week. But um, let's go ahead and. Um, Talk about this poem to wrap up this episode, and then we'll address anything else that comes up in those questions. Um, so, uh, hold on. My, what to do with the poem? Yeah, um, and my computer just started telling me, "Do you want to leave this meeting?" No, I'd rather, um, I'd rather not leave this meeting right <laughs> I'd now. Say I'd keep, you stay this meeting? I'd twice. rather keep this going. Um, okay. So, okay. Um, the the poem at the end. What does this have to do with with this subtitle, with the themes that are going on here, um, with the uh, the the this sort of you know slapstick comedy element that's going on?
0: Well, okay, so I'll I'll give this a shot. Um, and this is this is me kind of sort of processing this out loud, right? So this isn't like my fin- definitive answer, but this is the sorts of things that are kind of rolling around in my head as we've talked because it sort of changed a little bit what I thought was going on. And that didn't change, but it fleshed it out somewhat. Um, So first of all, it's the clown, right? And we've talked about him as being somebody who's not sucked into this sentiment and this drunkenness and um, who – who is a little bit different than a typical Shakespeare fool in that he seems to be hyper self-aware. So, you know, um, the, a clown in Shakespeare always confuses and twists things around, but this clown has that self-reflective moment where he says, I'm confusing you with my words. I am beguiling you. I'm So he he almost is, he's in the play, but also sort of outside of the play as this commentator on everything that's going on, right? Almost, <laughs> almost in this postmodern Hey, we are now in the part of the play where, you know, (laughs) really, really drawing attention to it. So the fact that he's at the end this guy who's sort of been commenting on the the thing that now that makes sense. And it gives, of course, weight to what he's saying. But it's also going to have that ambiguity because he's the clown and you Mm -hmm. expect him to say something stupid at the end. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you look through what he says and it's this mix of this sort of playfulness stuff, but also this dark. But it's going to rain every day
2: it's going to rain every day, which is,
0: this is very different than the whole theme of we're in paradise and we're all in love with love and everything's great. I mean, these stories are supposed to end with happily ever after. And they rode off into the sunset, not with, and it rained every single day. (laughs) That's, that's quite a comment. But then I'm also thinking about what you said about how everybody in this play is 13 years old, because the clown picks up that idea. He's basically saying when I was a child, I did childish things. That's how it starts. When I was a little boy, I played with toys. And then he keeps going and says, but, you know, then you got to become a man when, it's, when you, when you want to get married. Now it's time not to be a kid and play with toys because now you're going to get married. And and then he, he goes the whole thing and says, you know, the, the play's done. So so I think that just highlights what we've been saying. He's raising the question to the audience. Are they all just kids playing with toys? But these relationships, are they going to man up and really have real marriages? So that's my that's my that's my two cents on that.
3: That makes sense. That makes sense to me. I mean, but when I came to Mans estate, gainst knaves and thieves, men shut their gate. But when I came, alas, to wive, by swaggering, I could I could I never thrive. Yeah, that right there seems to be like um, I mean, it, it really supports Angelina's kind of assessment. Like, are these characters going to grow up and become? adults now that they're getting married because the rain is going to come and you know Mm -hmm. the flood has been sort of synonymous with madness all throughout our play yes Yes. so if we have like the rain is going to be here every day and madness is going to be at our doorstep every day what are these characters going to do now that they've made this huge decision to marry up now what It's kind of like, are they gonna stay? You know what, this kind of makes sense. This might, I'm kind of like making the play sort of resolve a little bit for myself right now. This kind of, in a way, helps explain why Toby and Andrew just kind of get tossed off. They're not gonna change. They're just gonna continue being knaves. They're just gonna continue drinking. And now we're on the threshold of two weddings. Are we gonna see, or maybe three weddings, are we gonna see a change in our two our four main characters? Um, are they gonna grow up? I shouldn't say not all four characters need to, that are getting married need to grow up. It's I think
0: the implication is that Viola and Sebastian are okay as the other two. They're already two. there, right. Yeah. Are, are, C- are, are our and Olivia gonna gonna grow up? Yeah. Which, you know, so this idea when they were kids and they were playing with toys, and we've kind of been saying all along, they're playing at being in love. They're playing uh-huh. at being in mourning. All of their sentiments are just, they're just acting, and that's why you can just redirect it in whatever direction you want.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then they have that. So then, of course, Olivia and Arsino have that very funny exchange in Act 5 where he says, "Oh, you're still so cruel." And she says, "Still so constant." Okay, that's hilarious. <laughs> because her 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 constancy is that she switched from Violet to Sebastian, doesn't even realize it, and then he says, "Oh, no, my soul is the most faithful one." And so they're both arguing about which one's the constant one between the two of them. <laughs> and neither one of them is.
1: So, this poem does have a little bit of that when I was a child um i saw as a child vibe to it Mm
2: -hmm.
1: when when that i was in a little tiny boy and i tim by the way i was going to mention something that you actually did and that's if you just read the first and third line of each stanza yeah it's actually interesting how it kind of falls together as well
3: it makes a story right right Mm -hmm. um yeah those middle lines the in-between lines are a little bit almost like the magician making a making a uh Doing something sleight of hand with his off hand so that he can actually do the the trick with his right hand.
1: Oh, yeah, those yeah. those so offline strikes
3: me distractions. Yeah, to tell mm-hmm. the story, which is it's kind of a serious moral story, a moral tale. It's got a it's got a point to it. So,
2: I
0: wonder if in this sense is the clock because he sings a few songs throughout. Is he almost functioning like the chorus in a Greek play? where he's commenting on the action well i think i thought i i
1: i, I feel like that's something i might have mentioned like in act one that it felt like a chorus to me but on the other hand i, I think may you have not did said david that. um i think you did say that so i buy that idea i haven't studied it closely to see if he's commenting throughout the whole thing but i will say he certainly is commenting on whether or not the people around him are idiots oh right so there is that part of it um but I wanted to ask something about that then. So um, he says, when I was a little tiny boy, a foolish thing was but a toy. But when I came to man's estate in this timber this against knaves and thieves, men shut their gate. Okay, so then he says, but when I, but when I came, alas, to wive, by swaggering, could I never thrive? So there's two interesting words that I want to ask about there. So it says, but when I came, alas, to wife, Why does it say Alas. Besides the meter, and then also by swaggering, could I never thrive? And swaggering here is bullying, according to my notes. So when I came alas to wife, so why is it alas to wife, and why is by bullying could I never thrive? Is it bullying the wife? Is it bullying to acquire a wife? Is it bullying other? I mean, what what's the um, what what is that? What's going on there?
3: I want to take issue with that in there that you've got, David. Why, I, I was going
0: to say, mine defines it differently. Mine says blustering. What do you think, Tim?
3: Blustering. Bullying doesn't make any sense. And there's so much flexibility in that word. No, I think that's a bad
1: end note, David. Well, I'm going to check on my other um version, too, to see, see what they but say. But I think but blustering
0: okay? has, has the same sort of connotation of all that excessive sentiment we've been talking about, don't you? I mean, a guy yeah, who yeah, full hot air...
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought the swagger, the swagger thing. You know, you know, a dude who just like walks around with so much swagger. Exactly. He doesn't even realize.
0: In other words, you can't pretend, right? You can't pretend because a swagger, a bluster, he's pretending. That 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 guy's a fraud. This is all a, you know, a front. His pretext of what a big tough guy is or whatever. But. You can't and do that.
1: That I'm glad you that your note up. says something different because mine I thought oh swagger like a, you know that makes sense and then I the reason I asked about that word is because bullying didn't make sense to me so I was wondering if there was huh. there but what about alas but when I came alas to wife is that just like alas because oh now I have to grow up
3: uh, see <laughs> like the actor in me wants to say oh that'd be the actor can. Say that with a wink.
1: Okay, but when I came, like as a little aside, but when I came, yeah, alas, you know,
3: yeah, he's winking at the audience. He's like, you know, I had to grow up. (laughs) But we know this is the thing that you're supposed you ought to do. Okay, you ought to grow up.
0: But I like that I like the idea of the wink because again, that intentional ambiguity is growing up bad or is it good? We've got to talk about a mirror to our own time. We can't decide if we should grow up or not. I mean, that that song could be said about 2017 America right now, right? Everybody's just playing at love. Nobody's growing up and getting married. I mean, insert your you know, cultural commentary article here, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And then you get the next line, or the next stanza rather, but when I came onto my bed's, plural interestingly there with tosspots still had drunken heads so tosspots is that my thing here says that means drunkards is that what? what is yours yes
0: and and my note says the unto my beds means the old age so he goes he starts with when i was a child and ends up with so so he grows up and he gets married and now he's an old man
1: so so he's an old man with drunkards if you substitute drunkards for tosspots with drunkards still had drunken heads
0: I'm not exactly sure how to interpret.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to... So when I I get old, drunkards still had drunken heads, basically.
0: That seems to imply that he's not expecting anybody to actually grow up.
1: Huh.
3: Well,
0: now we know what
3: happens in the marriages.
0: (laughs) but, but But it may also be a comment to the audience... And because the, actually the, the very last stanza is a great while ago, the world begun. So then, so yeah. he takes it off of this little microcosm of one man and then yep. puts it on into the whole world. But see the whole idea of a great while ago, the world begun to me feels like civilization has been around a really long time. And why are we still a bunch of children? <laughs> why aren't we growing up as a culture?
1: But the, but then at the last line, like so you could almost yep. if you're if you're looking at the alternating lines and you're taking out the the, the refrain. No, lines, you're right. Then the but then that's then all.
0: One, our play is done. That's a very dismissive. Ah.
1: Right. So don't I take
0: anything it, I'm saying too seriously.
1: I think it ends if you're doing the alternating lines and taking out the refrains. You almost have to end the poem at a great while ago the world begun, and it's really abrupt. And then it gets back to this the refrain lines, but then it does your throw away, but that's all one our play is done and we'll strive to please you every day. So like he reverts back to this idea of like pleasure seeking. So is that still wink, wink? Is this the clown being wink, wink at us? Or is he saying, you know, there's nothing we, is it pessimistic? Is it a fundamentally pessimistic uh, perspective that he's offering here? Like you're not going to grow up anyway, so we'll just try to do our best to please you
3: it seems a little bit pessimistic and that would suit i mean the character of the clown is he's pretty jaded appropriately so he's it's very
1: part of the jaded. reason
3: that he's it's part of the reason that he sees things clearly is that he's um he's not i don't know his his cynicism has guarded him a little bit mm.
0: Okay, so this ending feels a little bit to me like the ending of the clerk's tale in Chaucer. Do you know what I'm talking about? He gives that long diatribe against women, which is a direction, he's directing it at the wife of Bath, who he's taken issue with because she made some comments negatively about clerks. And so then clerks, if you're American, but clerks is how Chaucer would have said it. And um, scholars, scholars, cler- clerks are scholars. So she makes a day at scholars. So then he is this big misogynistic rant against women and then at the end says but don't take anything I say too seriously it's just a story and we're all just having fun and scholars really get into that right like is he really saying don't take me seriously is he really just trying to make sure the wife of bath doesn't slap him across the face is it is it is it is it like what's happening here where he's just laid out this heavy truth but now he's going to try to play it off like it's a joke possibly to it just feels sort of the same thing. And Shakespeare was very influenced by Chaucer. There's a, there's actually a, a quite a few things that Harold Goddard pointed out about Twelfth Night that was reminiscent of Chaucer.
3: It, you know, it, Chaucer's, doesn't Chaucer publish at the end? Um, what are they, what do they call, what does he call them? Not uh, remissions. Um, he takes no, back that's, that's, everything that's, that's, that he wrote.
0: That's, that's at the Clark's Tale. That's what I'm talking about. That's in the Clark's Tale. Oh, I There's debate. There's a debate about whether that's Chaucer, the author, speaking, or if it's still the Clark, the character. There's scholarly debate about that.
3: I thought that there was an actual kind of epilogue that Chaucer attached that said, all of this is wink, wink, joke, joke, and that it's in both the Clark's tale, but that sentiment is repeated in an epilogue.
0: (sighs) Well, he never finished writing it, so there's not an epilogue
1: what am I thinking about people should really finish their books
0: I know death I mean that's just like one of my personal things is like how many great awesome things have been destroyed by death? books I mean but Chaucer finished it in heaven and I can't wait
3: (laughs) 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 okay hold I just found my Chaucer because I'm just because I'm confused
0: oh no I'm gonna have to go look at it too Chaucer's Retractions,
3: Chaucer's Retraction, that's what I'm trying to think, that I was trying to recall.
0: Yes, but that's in the middle, right?
3: In my Penguin edition, it's at the end.
0: Huh. Okay, well, all I can say, I'll have to go get mine. I have the um, World Classics edition, but I will say that the order that the tales go in is a highly debated scholarly Mm -hmm. thing, because they were there after he died they're just in fragments and so there's a lot of scholarly debate about the order that they go in
1: well our listeners just walked into a, a close episode on chaucer <laughs> on, on, yeah uh-huh. right right <laughs> 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 um, we should probably uh work to wrap it up here so uh, let's let's table that discussion for now but we can you know i'm sure people will want to talk to you on, fa- on facebook about that do you either of you have any final thoughts uh for this episode before we uh, jump to answer people's questions next week
3: I have no final thoughts.
0: You know, after how much we got laughed at last week of saying I have no final thoughts and then each running to get our final thoughts in, <laughs> I'm a little nervous on how to answer this question. So I'll say, I appear to have no final thoughts. <laughs> at the hey, moment. ho, the rain will come.
1: <laughs> and it And it is a very rainy day in North Carolina today.
0: It is.
1: Um, so, all right. So hold on a second. Do you have no final thoughts that, that we're getting at here? Neither of you?
0: That is my unofficial, off-the-record statement. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, all right then. Let's end um, <laughs> before you come up with something. Uh, but okay, we like I said, we will post um, a, a thread on the Facebook page for people who want to submit questions. Uh, if you don't, uh, if you're not on Facebook or you still want to submit, you can email me David at and we'll get to some of those as well. We'll cover as many questions as we can which is probably two uh um next week that's the way
3: it always goes isn't it <laughs> two questions and we're done
1: but feel free to send as many as you'd like i'm sure there'll be some overlap um Dave, usually, do you want people to, to hashtag them sure just yeah let's do a uh, hashtag close reads q a great um and we'll use the ampersand hashtag close reads q ampersand a how about that perfect um and we will, like I said, we'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget about the bonus podcast um, and don't forget about checking out the commons because this week, uh, this month, Brian Phillips has been releasing an episode a week about key figures in church history and I've been listening to them and they're pretty good. So I recommend that you go subscribe to the commons and uh, catch up on that season if you can. There's some great stuff in there for just during Advent, just contemplating these key figures that that played such a big role in the development of church history and um, so far he's done. Uh, a lot of early church fathers. I think this week he is running one on um, St. Francis, maybe? No, not St. Francis. St. Benedict. St. Benedict with David Hicks. So that's going up this week, to, uh, tomorrow. So lots, oh, of great, nice. lots of great stuff in there. Um, and uh, I highly recommend that. Um, the Ask Andrew podcast is is going up every Wednesday. Those are short 15, 20, well, 10, 15 minute episodes um, where where he's answering just key questions about classical education, like things like, uh, what is the liberal arts? What, are, um, what is the quadrivium? Why does the Dor- Dorothy Sayers become her interpretation become so popular? All kinds of stuff like that. So, um, with that, I guess this is it. This is your last chance, Angelina, for a final thought.
0: Nope, I'd like to phone a friend. <laughs>
1: okay. Tim, you're the friend. Would you like to give a final thought? <laughs> no, I don't. I have nothing else to say. With okay, I'm going to be a d-
0: friend. T- Tim.
1: <laughs> um, and hey, we're full circle. Back to the friendship thing.
0: Oh
3: yeah, uh,
1: well done, you guys. We're, we're, I'm going to do 50-50 and option A is keep going on this show. Option B is end the show. I'm going to choose option B and sign off. So for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at Circe, I'm David Curran saying farewell on the Close Reads podcast on the Circe Podcast Network. Oh, and Merry Christmas, right? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful uh, wonderful, uh, weekend uh, with your family and friends and we look forward to talking to you uh, next week as we uh, conclude 2017 on close series with the Q& a Q&A episode of 12th Night.
2: Archetypes in space